you know, people would come through and talk to me about how awful my kerning was. And I was like, what? Do what? Those are fighting words. And welcome to the 38th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Oh my dear quarantinerinos, far and wide, I do hope that you're keeping safe and well, and I'm very happy to be back with another week of print chats. Chats brought to you by the Pine Copper Lime Patreon supporters. As always, thanks so much to all of you, and particularly those who've joined up in recent weeks. We are deep within the most uncertain of times, and your support means so much right now. And if by chance anyone out there listening has found themselves staring at their walls a little bit more than usual, and maybe even longing for some new art, PinecopperLime.com has a print gallery with a beautiful selection of artists from all over Southeast Asia. There's a link to our Patreon and our online print gallery in the show notes. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers, join the party. At 1.8 meters. My guest this week is Martin Mazzora, a well-known and well-loved printmaker based in Brooklyn, but originally from West Virginia. Which, luckily for me, means he's blessed with a fantastic voice for radio. Martin makes stunning woodcuts, often paired with letterpress movable type, which he uses to create his own iconographic systems which are as beautiful as they are darkly humorous. He is also exceptionally cool, which makes me feel a little bit like an awkward nerd from the AV radio club during our interview, so I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing that as well. This is another interview I recorded in the pre-corona world. So, at the end, you'll hear Martin list the exhibitions that he's looking forward to participating in and creating work for. And again, just like last week, I left all of that in. I want us to remember that exhibitions are going to be rescheduled, galleries will open up again, the work we do will find its audience, we will meet again. And in the meantime, I hope these episodes help that distance feel a little smaller. So... Sit back, relax, and prepare to be cool as a cucumber with Martin Mazzora. What do you mean that's not cool? That is totally a cool thing to say. That is what cool people say. Hi, Martin. How's it going? Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. Very good. Very good. Well, I know you really sort of just by reputation and from seeing your work online and, and seeing representations of Cannonball Press at various conferences. I always like to ask my guests to introduce themselves a little bit and kind of just let people know who are unfamiliar, the questions of who you are, where you are, and what you do. My name is Martin Mazora. I am currently living and working in Brooklyn, New York. I have been making prints in New York and teaching printmaking in New York for over 20 years. I have a letterpress studio, a collection of wood type and uh, antique letterpresses that I've collected and maintained for a number of years. I am a print-centric artist. 
and specifically relief um, woodcut and uh, letterpress. I've been making everything from small business cards to large format mural size wheat pastes and sewn prints. I've done some sculpture from prints, both like inflatables and uh, cardboard sculptures with wheat paste prints on the outside of it. Yeah, currently I'm I'm working on a, a large format project of all new work for a show in Austin, Texas. I think that that kind of sums it up. And so sort of all the, the different hats you wear, you say you're like artist and teacher and letterpress conservator. Is that kind of meant the many different things yeah, that you Yeah, letterpress do? conservator. Yeah, I, I publish prints as well as Cannonball Press, so I function as a publisher. So I seek out other artists. I'm constantly looking at other artists that um, have a similar aesthetic to the Cannonball Press aesthetic. I produce a $20 black and white woodcut. That's been a, a kind of a staple or a cornerstone of a lot of the things that I do. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the letterpress enthusiast, conservator, um, advocate, general con man. <laughs> yeah. Well, where did you grow up and, and what role did art play in that, that time in your life? I'm originally from West Virginia. I spent the first 21 years living in West Virginia. I studied art in middle school and in high school and then went to the university and studied at the West Virginia University. I studied art. I never had much um, outside training other than the, you know, bits of art classes I had in high school. And when I got to the university, I studied painting and drawing. I thought that that's, I wanted to be a painter. And I still really enjoy that. But I think that when I discovered print and I discovered the multiple and kind of the accessibility of it, also the history of the democratic history of it, um, that really spoke to me. And I think that it wasn't until I would say it was probably about four or five years after I had those experiences early on, formative experiences, and I spent some time painting and working in New York as a printer, but also trying to promote myself as a painter, that I kind of really fell in love with the philosophy of making accessible and affordable art. And I think that a lot of that camp comes from, you know, growing up in West Virginia and steeped in, you know, kind of populist culture. But also at the time that I was growing up in like high school and junior high and high school and was making art in college too, there was a, we had like an all ages club that was there and we had a lot of bands that would come through and there was a, you know, a kind of DIY aesthetic and ethos that became kind of formative with a lot of us. And I kind of carried that over into my art practice with the formation of Cannonball Press and that kind of model of doing it yourself and producing your own and your friend's work and putting it out there. So it was in college then you discovered printmaking? Did you just find a, a printmaking course and discover that you enjoyed it? The printmaking program at West Virginia University, now that I look back on it and, and learn a little bit more about it, there was always kind of a history of that university having a print program. Mm. When I was there, in terms of the 2D work that was going on there, I think that it was very progressive 
in what now I think people interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, but the sphere of the influence of, of print kind of affected a lot of the making that was going on there. And the artists that were teaching in that were very in, informative, but then you also had the culture within the studio. And there were a lot of graduate students that were coming to study printmaking there. And they worked in the laboratory with the underclassmen. And so you had that kind of exchange that happens in, the, in a print studio. And that was also that social aspect of it. It spoke to me in, in, in the way I think that it does to a lot of people, especially when you are kind of socialized, having grown up and had that social shared experience of like listening to music with other people. You know, you're comfortable kind of being in a room with other people doing, you know, your own thing. Uh, sharing a common appreciation for what's going on around you. I, I feel like it was kind of a natural progression into that. And so, you know, you, you had that shared experience and it was also a very strong program at the time as it is now. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like that the West Virginia had a really, as you were saying, it has a really strong print program then as now, but you didn't necessarily know about that when you, you went to school there it was something you discovered once you'd, you'd arrived and started to engage with it? Right. I went to West Virginia University. That was my only option. <laughs> 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 it was, wasn't, uh, it was, and I'm, I'm fortunate to have had that op opportunity, you know. And, um, and, and so once I got out, I went to graduate school at the uh, American University in Washington, D.C., and I went there to study painting. And while I was there, I think I ended up working with, with the, the printmaker that was adjunct professor there and spent time in the studio there. And I took a, a course through Consortium of Schools at George Washington, and I studied printmaking there. And, and I think that that was one of the things, too, is that you walked into that environment and you had a shared experience and a shared understanding mm -hmm. of a particular process. And I think that you had conversation that you could start with people, too. So it's like you understood the process, this is how we do things here, you know, how do you do things there, that kind of thing. Mm. And um and there were those those moments to enter into it. And so when I came to New York and I needed work, I was very fortunate enough to have a, a visiting artist that was working on a lithograph with Andrew Mockler at Jungle Press here in New York. And she introduced me to Andrew and I worked for him for five years, um, four or five years, I worked for Andrew. And he was extremely generous with his time with me. You know, I got to meet a lot of different artists in New York. So I saw a different side of the print world, you know, like a professional side of it, and outside of an academic studio. I worked in that environment for a, a long time. And at that point, I, I think I was still make paintings and stuff. But it, it was a, a way of engaging with the community in New York. I also went, um, this was before I started Cannonball too, I went and, you know, made prints in, in um, some of the open access print studios in, in Manhattan Graphics. I went there to access screen printing, which I had never done before. They didn't have that when I was in West Virginia. And so I was making most of the lithographs and, and etchings and, and stuff and relief prints but i hadn't ever done screen printing so i basically you know took an introductory class and then just went there you know would use the facility i didn't have a studio either 
so that became kind of my default place to go work. So where did letterpress come into your life and how did it end up kind of taking over and now being such a, a big part of what you do and your ethos? I think that letterpress kind of came into it at the time that I was working for Jungle Press around 99 or something like that. I was walking down West Broadway on a Saturday. I probably had gone into the shop to work on my own stuff or or clean up from Friday when it was just, you know, whatever. So I was walking through West Broadway and I met Kevin Bradley was selling prints on the street of Yeehaw Press. He and Julie were selling prints on, uh, mm. <laughs> they, had been, they were up from Knoxville, Tennessee. And so you, I'm walking down the street and, you know, you, 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 you see all that other stuff, man. And then all of a sudden you see that thing that's hand printed and you see that type and you, you know, all the hand carved type that they were doing at the time and all the color. And it was artwork that people were making about stuff that I was into, you know, they were making mu- music posters and yeah. And the, in those letter forms and all that stuff, it just, it, you know, and so then I saw that and that really, I think that spoke to me in a way there was a connection for me to a lot of the things that I had really found formative and here were people doing it and it looked like they were having a good time doing it. It was graphic. I think that one of the things that like in thinking about forming Cannonball Press was that, you know, at the time that I was doing that, people were trying to build web pages and stuff like that. And you would see, and you know, the, the, the color profile and the space, the amount of, you know, the, the format was so small and so low res um, and, and took forever to load. And I was like, man, if you just built that, if it was just black and white and it was really low, you know what I mean? And like, you could totally tell what it was, just big, bold graphics that would load so much faster and you would totally get a, what you see is what you're going to get kind of thing, you know, whereas like subtle nuanced color prints, it was kind of hard to tell because I worked on those and I would see them online, you know, or I'd see them printed because then people still printed postcards and stuff. And you'd be like, man, I just doesn't cut it. There was a lot at that time too. So those cats and then, you know, Bill Fick was in New York at that time, Bill would have postcards and he would do these mailings. And so you would get these postcards in the mail from Bill Fick and we had them, I had him on my refrigerator for years, man. You know, I got on his mailing list through STC or something, and you would get those things in the mail. And that was always fun. So there's a lot of things like that. And then I think maybe a couple years after that, you know, I bought those prints. I bought some prints from Julie and Kevin that I still have. And it had to have been, because I have a big double ot. Like it was like a, a calendar for, you know, the new millennia. And then I started teaching, I think, at Parsons in the fall of 2000 and there was a letterpress at Parsons that was underneath this tarp, like the Frankenstein monster, you know, <laughs> kind of hanging out underneath there mm-hmm. and uh, nobody was using it. Right. But there was that Frankenstein monster hanging right. out <laughs> and I had never touched one. I'd never, I'd never fooled with it. And there was all the wood type that was there, but it was under lock and key. Thank God. Cause you know, otherwise those kids would have all stole their initials out of it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And so like, <laughs> It, it, there were different, you know, there were different people. There's this cat, John Ross, that wrote the complete printmaker. So John was there and he was teaching a, um, a continuing education class. And every once in a while, I'd be poking around in there and I would see you know, people making stuff on it. And so you like kind of figured it out. I was like, okay, that's where that goes. That's where that goes. 
And then you go in and nobody was using it. You just dogpile some stuff until you figured it out, mm-hmm. you know, but I never really had anybody show me how to do it. I just kind of, mm-hmm. kind of messed with it until I got it right. I didn't even really get it right. I think I just messed with it until I got some ink on paper and I was like, I'm a letterpress printer. <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry, trained letterpress people of the world. Um, but yeah, that was, that was kind of the story with that. And that there was type in there and it, you know, it was fonted out in different sizes and different weights. And, you know, I, I just started messing with it. And really I had no typographical background, like none, you know what I mean? And there were graphic designers mm-hmm. at that school, really competent type designers and book designers and layout designers that were teaching in that. And, you know, people would come through and talk to me about how awful my kerning was or, you know what I mean? And I was like, what? <laughs> Do what? Those are fighting words. Um, but no, I was, you know, just a sponge at that point, you know? And so you're like, All right, cool. I don't know what I'm doing. When I teach it now, I can see what everybody wants to do with that. You know, everybody wants to make alphabet soup when they first get on letterpress. And it's like, all right, let's just do that the first mm. day. Now that you've done that, let's let's learn how to do this. What do you mean by alphabet soup? You just take a whole bunch of different letter forms from different sets of type. Oh. And I call that hillbilly teeth. It's just like <laughs> mismatched and uh-huh. they're all. There's no baseline. It's beautiful. But once you do that once, man, you know, it's like, all right, there you go. Some people quit right there. They're like satisfied their whole thing, you know, a lot of kids, (laughs) you know, they, all they want to do is learn how to print screen print a t-shirt, man. It's like, show them how to screen print and just move on, you know, scratch that itch. Anyway, so you do that and then you figure out how to do it better. You know, I, I, ne- I never had to, luckily, I never had to do any kind of commercial work with it because you know, I would spend hours and hours doing those initial lockups because, you know, I wasn't measuring anything. I mean, it's usual line gauges, kids. Yeah, but I wasn't measuring anything. I was just jamming shit in there to see if I could get it to print. And I mean, I did, but eventually, you know, you wanted to um, to do certain things. Things and, and by just, you know, challenging yourself and the desire to do different stuff, I guess I figured it out a little bit more, you know? Yeah. I feel, I, I, I yeah. still feel like there's so much I could, it, it has a lot of rich possibility and there's a resistance to it that uh, I really find mm-hmm. and like a puzzle making curiosity that I find really interesting. So your interest in, in letter type and that process, was that when words sort of began to appear in your work or were introduced or were you playing with that balance between picture and text before this i think that i had been introducing images with text a little bit before that Uh, when i was working with cannibal uh, my collaborator at the time mike houston he and i were both really interested in comics i think more him than me he had a deeper understanding of that it became interesting to be able to pair stuff with text and have that layer of meaning incorporated into it. And I think that mm-hmm. in terms of uh, formative image making, I think that was always interested in, I guess, what it, you know, the codification of imagery and how the associations that people would have with particular images. And I, I think that like being able to lay that extra layer inside of there 
it was it was interesting to me. Uh, you know, I worked with a lot of abstract painters when I was in graduate school that you know were painting shapes, and then they, they would talk. Mm-hmm. You know, philosophers like, <laughs> okay, cool. I mean, I I guess I get it. I probably don't get it. You know, I, I definitely don't. I'm not gonna lie. I don't get it that aspect of it. And it was really reductive at that point too. So you're like really reducing. And then there was a point where it just like, you could put everything back in and maybe overstep it. I think I was interested in a balance. So it's like, you know, I'm joking about the, you know, the aesthetic of certain artists, but in some ways it's like when you found people that had that really beautiful balance in their work, you know, that was Mm -hmm. what I think I wanted. And so maybe, or maybe I will eventually figure it out, but, I think being able to add type into it was a, a way of fulfilling certain things that I don't think that maybe the pictures weren't able to do. So it was like a balance between those things. Yeah. When you were talking about playing with the associations that people have with particular images, is that a bit how you kind of came to using an aesthetic that feels a bit vintage or I've, I've said called like almost Victorian, like you'll use these these hands with cuffs and that kind of thing. And then you'll add words to it, and the play between the two feels old and new. They're there at the same time. Is that kind of how you came to it? Is because you just sort of like draw on that cachet of association that people already have? I think that I I look to those, like I reference that stuff a lot. Of course, I mean, all of that Victorian, like chromolithography and and, uh, all that stuff is just gorgeous, man. You know, it's just like, it's beautiful stuff. And Valentine's. All those early, even the ones that, even the ones from mid-century were great, mm. and the sentiment behind that, you know, uh, a picture and an it and uh, a little bit of text was always really wonderful. I don't know how I, or why. I mean, I think there's a directness to all that stuff, and um, mm. and a and a, a vernacular to commercial printing that I really at that particular point in time that I think is is uh, is really nice to be able to reference it. I think that I kind of arrived at that codification through an interest in, in, in associative imagery. There were um, these dream books that you could get at the deli to tell you what lottery numbers to pick, you know? So like if you had a dream about a black dog, it meant that you should play a certain number. But they would also be able to tell you that, you know, like you were going to fall in and out of love or, you know, you might step in a puddle or break your ankle or something. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like they were able, there was a delineation from associative imagery as well. And I just thought that stuff was super fantastic. That if you could build your own lexicon of stuff and have it mean something, I think that that was like in the way that you would look at and talk about European or even non-European art when you would see a whole lexicon of images in Indian miniatures. I don't know what the hell that's about. But you know what I mean? It's like you could sit there and, and, and build on it. You could see that particular character played out in a number of vignettes and be like, all right, kind of get a sense of what's going on here. You know, I think that like being able to build that for myself was interesting with the flowers. Yeah, I was definitely thinking of your, as your flowers as you were as you were talking, if you want to yeah, speak to that series. Yeah, I mean, I think I started that about six or seven years ago as a means to start making some color work because I had made for like 14 years, I'd made just black and white woodcuts. So just to start making pictures again in that way. And it was a subject that seemed really rich in terms of it. And then I think, you know, I maybe had 
heard of the language of flowers, but then when I was working on that, I obviously researched those floral dictionaries and there it's, you know, it's mm-hmm. all made up, which is awesome. I mean, sorry, florographers. Yeah. <laughs> They're super fantastical, which is like really wonderful. And then you, you, you see that there was like florography in Shakespeare. He had a whole bunch of associative meaning and all of that herbalists and you know all that stuff it's just super rich right i don't claim to to know all that stuff i just made up my own um based on kind of common associations with stuff so is it somehow is it a play on what for instance the pomegranate flower really represented or is it just completely your own i think it's it's based on some things like sultry science if you talked about jasmine and there's that you know um musky flavor that is like a the white flower of jasmine has like a particular olfactory Mm -hmm. um association to it and when i was looking at it there were a whole bunch of like scientific explanations of why that flower had alluring aroma you know what i mean and so like and so you're looking that's it i just dispelled the whole fucking beauty of it um but that's, I mean, really, that's it. You know, you're you're going through and you're and you're and you're looking at it. And the pomegranate flower too. I mean, it's like I've made a couple of those too, based on the Song of Solomon. And in the Song of Solomon, the writer speaks of the beauty of this person and compares them to certain flowers. That was mm. it was always interesting to me. It's a big, wonderful love poem that comes out of the Old Testament. And I, I just think that those things are really wonderful. But also too, like. There's a, a rose morrow, which is like a, I don't know what the hell they call it, but it was, but they used to call it the Rose of Sharon. But then you find out the Rose of Sharon was like a crocus that grew on the plain of Sharon. And this is like, you know, references back to Israel. And so it's like, it's not the same flower as the common mm-hmm. flower. The one that my grandmother would tell me was the Rose of Sharon. So... I don't know, you know, there were flowers that we we had growing up in West Virginia, too, that you would see, and then others that were more common in in people's yards and stuff like that, and then ones that were more exotic, I guess. And in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, too, there were, you know, you don't see anything for a couple of months. It's pretty gray, and then all of that stuff Mm -hmm. starts coming out, Mm -hmm. and you see small patches of people's little bits of garden. And that, I think, was, you know... Another thing too, it's like I only worked on those flower things in the spring and in the summer, and then the rest of the year I just went back into my hate cave and carved black and white prints. <laughs> back into my less romantic, snarky. Uh huh. Yeah, and made yeah, <laughs> made gnarly black and white prints. Well, and then and then recently too, birds have been appearing in your work. Is that kind of from a, a a bit of a similar place in the same way that I think historically flowers, they take up a big place culturally with weddings and deaths and, and symbols and, and obviously in poetry. And I guess now that we're talking about it, birds do as well, whether it's a, a raven or, or an owl or a robin, we do have strong associations with them as symbolism. Is that kind of what brought you to using birds those carvings of those birds kind of existed before the flowers and i didn't really know what to do with them Hmm. and um 
after I had kind of made the flowers for a while, I think that I had names for those birds, but I kind of went back through and um, revisited that copy for a lot of those. But, you know, like I said, it's been a kind of an ongoing project, just kind of semantics of working through these things. And, and, and I, I do think that like, a, you know, you're looking for imagery. I mean, I tried oysters, but trust me, man, anybody can draw an oyster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like <laughs> the formless goop. Like when you start reading about uh, the olfactory senses, you, then, you know, people have descriptions mm. for all of those kind of high notes and low notes and floral and, you know, powdery and all those kind of things. And then I was like, well, you know, this gray glob, mm-hmm. people, you know, have all these, they're briny or they're meaty or, you know, all this kind of to this snot ball. And, um, and I thought that, <laughs> that yeah, I tried it with oysters and I don't know, it was okay. It's like not as many people are, I guess, as fond of oysters as flowers and birds. Do you like oysters? I do. I do. Okay. I like oysters. Um, I, um, I've been known to go out of my way for them. I think, too, I kind of got interested in it, too, because they started this million oyster project, which is now a billion oyster project here in the waterways around mm. New York City, where they're reseeding oyster beds after Hurricane Sandy. And with the, the idea that those would uh, a purify the water and I guess prevent erosion in certain areas. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I kind of got interested in in them around that time. In terms of the lexicon of plants and animals that carry strong symbolism, oysters are in there. Mystical erotic powers to the fact that they make pearls on the inside from a grain of sand or something getting in and the, the the strong metaphor that can be drawn from that. I think anything too that has anything, anything that we interact with that seems to have a reveal that is something unique. So for instance, like reading tea leaves, like an oyster is like that, right? Cause you crack it right. open and you no idea what's going to be on the inside. Right. More, more often than not, you just get a big snotball though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I th- I always I've eaten a ton of oysters and and touch wood. I've never gotten sick from eating them. And I look them in their proverbial eye to decide which ones on the plate I'm going to eat. Yeah, so you have your yeah. own mode of delineation. I yeah. do. So I think I do. That we we invent that, right? We invent mm-hmm. that in in terms of image making. I feel like that is interesting to me, and I think it's one of the reasons that I like to look at other people's images as well and engage with other artists in their work. Right. Yeah. And and speaking of that, I, I definitely want to make sure we have time to chat a bit about Cannonball Press because we've talked about it here and there throughout. Can you speak to it directly and how and when it got started, your motivations and, and what you do with it now? It started out as a means by which to print work by myself and my friends and to to produce an affordable piece of artwork. And so conceptually, the idea was that all the work would be black and white, all of it would be the same size, and it would all be 20 bucks. So it would establish a value for the work of a lot of younger artists that I was working with at the time. And I was working on a lot of different projects at the time, too. I was also working at the time that I started Cannibal with my friend Mike Houston and David Ellis on this project called the barnstormers where we were painting and doing mural painting and stuff like that time-lapse painting and the print project kind of started out of that and we 
we made some prints with David and we made some prints with Mike and I, we made, we started making prints with just different people that were around us. And, you know, then you would have this ready-made group show, right? So now you have all this work. It all looks the same kind of in the same spirit because it's all unified with that cohesive kind of aesthetic. And you had like a ready-made group show that you could show multiple times. And then if you did sell something, you had still had work Mm. that, was stacked in your closet or under the bed or whatever it was and you drug it out and you could put on another one. And then as we were working collaboratively with other people to make the work, Mike and I started making collaborative work together. So we started making collages from our woodcuts. So you had this kind of drawing that would happen after you made the initial drawing and carving and printing of the prints. And that became interesting. So the prints had this other life as well. So the prints always kind of, were the basis of this, but it was also kind of like the social situation that Prince provided you to interact with other artists and to have the support from other artists and to be able to go to other studios and say, we're here to make prints or we're here to show our prints and we're here to show prints of other people. So it became, it wasn't necessarily a collective because it was much more dogmatic than that about like nobody was ever going to change the model, you know, but people could participate in it by, making the cuts and then we would, you know, take it out and show it. And for about 12 years, you know, it, it started out much slower. And then, you know, for about six, seven years, we were doing collaborative projects. We worked with David Crute in, um, in the city, but then we also went to South Africa and made a big project that we did for, for down there. Yep. Made a 66 foot long parade snake that was covered in fifteen, covered in fifteen hundred woodcuts. Oh my gosh! Um, and we had we worked all summer to print. We solicited artists to send us scales, like a um, a ten by ten inch uh, square block of an endangered sub-Saharan African species. And so all of those got printed, sewn together, and then flown to South Africa. And we marched around a music festival. Um, yeah, there were there were projects like that, and then there were projects that were smaller. Like you know, that's a pretty grand project, but we made a book project with the uh, Philadelphia, the Independent Seaport Museum, and it was a small booklet about the uh, Olympia, which was Admiral Dewey's fleet ship and the um, Great White Fleet at the end of the 19th century sailed around the world and then ended up in the Spanish-American War in, in mm. uh, the Philippines. So it was that was an interesting topic to, to address and the aspects of imperialism and, and to try and do something with that that didn't necessarily skirt that issue, but also that would actually, I think we ended up showcasing a lot of the, um, we talked about it, but I think that we ended up talking mostly about the uh, engineering uh, feats that were aboard this ship. It's still down there decaying into the Delaware River. But just sort of small stuff like that. And then, you know, we were all along the way, we were publishing prints by other artists. So we would ask people to, to carve blocks. They would send them back to us. We'd print them. We would send them additions. They would sign them. They would keep artist proofs. We would keep additions, and we would sell those additions at at different shows and print fairs and we put on print fairs of our ourselves annually we did a 50 dollar or less division called prints gone wild in new york um 
but a lot of this stuff, you know, I think that a lot of this stuff too was before there were a lot of craft fairs and, and stuff like that. So that banquet table format that you see in a lot of places, I mean, that was really early on for us. That was like a big part of what we did was to, you know, provide that opportunity to be able to be behind a banquet table and showcase your work for people. And, you know, it, it, uh, it ran its course in terms of being able to do that. And then the collaborative work changed, you know, and I've been still publishing and still producing work as Cannibal. And this latest show that I'm doing now is kind of an iteration in the spirit of Cannibal. So um, I kind of, after the birds and after the flowers, uh, I just made the past six months I've been making black and white uh, letterpress and woodcut prints on fabric. And I'm doing a whole show based on signage. Mm. So that kind of outward signage that you'll see when you're driving down the road for somebody's business or service, you know, and then I'm putting a kind of a twist on like a more psychological twist on all of those that are more reflective. So I have like a relationship salvage yard, both foreign and domestic. You can pick and pull your own parts. So yeah, stuff like that. Death grip antiques for your heart to let go of items. So just, there's a whole bunch of them that are like that. So I'm really looking forward to this. And so I've written a, a bunch of copy for that and I've made, and I've typeset all those. And um, I'm going to be putting that on as, as kind of a cannonball press show. And there'll be some $20 affordable flat stock as a, a component of it. And then these big, you know, goofy banners. Yeah, it's just that's the current iteration of it. Mm-hmm. And so when you're saying signs, I'm picturing kind of like that really historical hand-painted sign kind of a feel. Um, Is that... Kind of in that spirit, you know, it's... Um, it's Kind of, yeah. I mean, it's it's basically some um, real journeyman, flat-footed, typeset stuff. I'm trying to get a. I'm not, you know, like I love that hand-painted mm-hmm. sign imagery. There's some hand-carved typography in it as well, but uh, several of the pieces are just giant lists of printed with six-inch letters. So there's like a an eight by twelve-foot wall that's just six-inch letters. That's like the list of of all the um the studio i moved just recently moved my studio from brooklyn about three years ago moved the studio from brooklyn to a a spot uh undisclosed location in connecticut um that i call the ham and acid hideout um (laughs) okay and um my my only companions (laughs) out there are a uh, gaggle of wild turkeys that come to visit but um Anyway, on the way from the highway to the to the um, to the studio, there's just all that stuff that you see every single time. So it's like those things that you would normally before you know before uh, Google Maps, you would kind of have to use landmarks to navigate. And so this is just a list of all the landmarks that I would use to navigate to get to the studio. You know, it's like so far past the ice place and the you know place where you get the good fried clams and the soft serve that's where they hit so in theory though someone someone could use it to find your undisclosed location though then yeah they could you have to read it though yeah yeah 
They could. They could. They could find me in my undisclosed location. Yeah, you're in the turkeys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you look for that gaggle of turkeys. You'll, you'll find me. Just hanging out. Yeah, it's good. It's good not to be alone, to, you know, too much. <laughs> because you start talking to them, and then that's... <laughs> really... Yeah. Well, aren't they, like... Um, they can be a little dangerous, right? I guess. Yeah. You know? I guess. Yeah, we kind of have, a like, a Tarzan relationship, mm. me and the turkeys. Okay. You know? I go out and call, call to them... <laughs> And they're really goofy. They're really goofy. Yeah. 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 So where's this upcoming exhibition going to be if people would like to to find it or um or experience it? It's going to be it opens uh March fifth at Preacher in Austin, Texas. Okay. And you can find them at Preacher Austin on the Instagram. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a nice spot. It's a really um, it's a super creative spot. They're a um, graphic design agency that's down there, and um, they're doing. They have a lot of really talented designers and copywriters that are working there, and they're doing some really interesting projects. And so I'm I'm really pleased to be able to, you know, trick somebody into let me show my stuff down there. <laughs> And uh, is there anything else on the horizon that you're looking forward to that you'd like to, to talk about? I, I just like the next three things that I got that, that's about as far forward as I can get is mm-hmm. to pretty much May. I'm going to be, what am I doing? I'm going to go and hang out with you at SGCI, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Beginning of April. Um, and then when we get back to Puerto Rico, I'm going to have some of the flowers. I'm going to be showing here in New York with Plant House, which is a, a gallery that Katie Michelle has in the Flower District. It's actually across the street from the Flower District in yeah. what was yes, traditionally Tin Pan Alley. She's got a nice space there, so I'll be doing a, uh, a show there. It'll be up in April. Um, and then I'm going to go to the Power of the Press Fest in Detroit. It's run by Signal Return. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to print sideshow imagery that'll be in an exhibition this summer, the uh, Freak Bar, hmm. the longest running sideshow on Coney Island at the Coney Island Sideshow Museum. So if you're in New York this summer, you can go and, and hang out and um, have a beer, see the sideshow. And then I'm going to probably go fishing for the rest of the summer. I think that's probably going to be about it for me. If I, if I if I get to that point by Memorial Day weekend, I think I'm just gonna you know check out for a few months and fish and hang out with the turkeys. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a good way to close up a summer. Top off with the with the sideshow and then go hang out with the with the turkeys. Right. Yeah. In the undisclosed location. In your undisclosed, but maybe if somebody really wanted to disclose it, they have to go see your show in Austin location. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I think there's probably like some geo geo uh, tracking you could do for my photos or something. Yeah, I'm sure. People, yeah, right. if people were, were very very keen. So if they if they wanted to get you know more clues about how to find you, can they uh, how can they follow you online and and uh, right. you know, ping your photos and that kind of right. thing. Right. I got a presence on, on the Instagrammer. It's mm-hmm. uh, M Mazora. 
and then there's Cannonball Press, and I got uh, CannonballPress.com and MartinMazor.net. So those would be the those would be the that's it. I'll definitely put links in the show notes to those so so people can start their tracking. And um, and other than that, yeah, I just I want to thank you for joining me for for an hour to chat about all the things, including turkeys and sideshows and oysters. Um, it's been real fun. Yeah, it was a good time. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to sharing it with everyone and um, and seeing you in Puerto Rico. That'll be good. Right on. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks again, Mark. Sounds good. All right. <laughs> yep, take care. You too. Bye now. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Omar Musa. Omar is a hip-hop artist, poet, and published novelist who recently came to printmaking and has producing the most playful and moving woodcuts, which skillfully mix imagery with words. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak, and sometimes commentary about what's cool and what's not cool, with music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.